But uh, we're in Luke 11, verses 5 through 13. Uh, prayer. Last week we began a little mini-series, if you want to call it that, on prayer. Uh, Jesus is, he, he, in chapter 11, verse 1, was praying in a certain place. He ceased praying. His disciples actually seemed to be awake this time uh, while he was praying. Or at least they woke up toward the end, which was a pretty rare thing for them to be uh, alert and awake while he's praying. And one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And then we got 12 verses of teaching. You want to know how to pray. A lot of people pray in different ways, and sometimes we can take on the form of prayer that we have learned. Long prayers, short prayers, uh, uh Particular catch words that get into our prayers, Lord, just this, just that, Lord, this, Lord, that, whatever it might be, fillers, uh, verbal clutter, all of those sorts of things. And we tend to learn that from other people as they pray and as we listen to them pray. Uh, and, and we all have those tendencies. But really, when it comes down to what should I pray? How should I pray? How can I make sure that the Lord is hearing my prayers? How can I be effective in prayer? And we can get so confused on this. Well, here we have a, a really special passage of scripture because a disciple asks the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. And this is the Lord's answer. Who better to learn from how to pray than the second person of the Trinity? How should we pray? So last week we answered one of three questions in regard to prayer. And that question was, what should we pray? This evening we consider two more questions. How should we pray? And why? Should we pray? There are so many times in the Christian life where we approach a concept and say, yes, I know I ought to do that, but how? Yes, but how? I agree the Bible says I need to do something, but how should I do it? Whether that be, I agree that I ought to share the gospel, but how do I share the gospel? Where do I start? I agree that I ought to be involved in the church, but what does that mean? How can I be involved in the church? I agree that I ought to read my Bible, but how should I read my Bible? Should I just start at the beginning and go through? Is there a place that I I should start? Are there resources I should use? And the Christian life is full of yes, but hows. And what a blessing it is that we have this passage of Scripture that says, yes, we should pray, but how? And Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Let me teach you to pray. So recall last time we were together, we asked this question, what should we pray? And we covered five key points to prayer. That as we pray, as we walk through what often is called the Lord's Prayer, we'll call the model prayer because the Lord's Prayer more uh, accurately, I believe, would be John 17. That's actually the Lord's Prayer for us. This is Jesus teaching us how we ought to pray. And we drew out of that passage these five points that we should first come in humility That we should then come in agreement. That we should come asking for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. That we should come for fellowship. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. That we should come for spiritual empowerment. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from that evil or from the evil one, depending on how you would want to understand that. We're called to recognize God's design given in His Word in response to this request of how we should pray. And tonight we continue with two other questions, as I mentioned. Now, this is very important. As we consider the the answer to these two other concepts, how should we pray, why should we pray, don't lose the context. Because if we forget what Jesus has already said, we're going to get... we're going to lose perspective on what Jesus is going to say. He's teaching what, what He's about to teach. He's teaching in light of what He's already taught. 
Oftentimes in scriptures, we can make the mistake of, of zeroing in on something and, and learning about it or applying it to the exclusion of context so that we forget what has been said before. But it's very important for us to understand that Jesus is teaching in context and we need to understand it in context. So let's answer the second question tonight. First, what should we pray from verses 1 through 4? This evening, beginning in verse 5, how should we pray? How should we pray? Jesus answers this question through an illustration. We might call a parable. Which we need to consider with great care because it's a little bit confusing and can leave us with the wrong message if we don't take care. Beginning in verse 5, we read this of Luke 11. And he, that would be Jesus, said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine is uh, in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. So Jesus puts the hearer into a scenario here. As a person who has closed up his house and has gone to bed for the night. Now obviously there are some major cultural differences between then and today, and I'm going to try to both teach the passage and then bridge the gap between the culture of the day and the culture of today. So Jesus speaks of a man who is at home and he is asleep with his family. His house is closed up for the night. And at midnight, his neighbor comes and begins to bang on the door of his house. Now take note that this is not an angry or otherwise obnoxious neighbor who is selfishly abandoning kindness at any hour, at any time, for no good reason, and without good sense. This is not a neighbor who stays up until 3 a.m. in his backyard with the loud music to keep you awake, and then every 45 minutes, for good measure, sets off a firework so that all the dogs in the neighborhood begin barking. This is not that kind of a neighbor, all right? This is not just a guy who regularly bugs you at night for no good reason or who has absolutely no um, no concern over you. And, and we know this because of that word importunity. When we get there, we'll find out that this word importunity uh, gives us the idea that this is something that the man that is knocking on the door, he knows that this is improper. He knows that this is not normal, that this is not conventional, but he has a real need here. And so he has to break societal norms. He has to break into impropriety in order to get what he needs. And what was that need? Well, he needs some bread because a friend of his had suddenly shown up from a journey and he had nothing to set before this friend. To understand the importance of the situation, we need to understand a little bit about Hebrew culture. Hospitality is one of the primary tenets of Hebrew culture. It would not necessarily have been uncommon for a uh, guest to arrive uninvited, unannounced, from a long journey and late at night. Uh, traveling at night would have been common because traveling during the day would be very hot. And so you travel at night, it gives you more endurance, it allows you uh, to go farther, and you sleep during the heat of the day. 
under the shade of some tree or the shade of some building. And so it would not necessarily be uncommon to have somebody knock on your door at night. They know you. And because of the hospitality of the day, there would be an expectation that you knowing this person, you would take care of them. You would help them. You would give them a place to stay. You would give them some food. You would meet their needs. Uh, the custom dictated that you bring them in, you welcome them, you feed them. So we see an example, and we see this all throughout the Old Testament, right? We see this with Abraham, when the Lord and, and the two angels appear and Abraham feeds them. We see it with Lot, when the two angels go into Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it with Manoah, uh, Samson's father, when, when the angel appears to Manoah. We see it with Jethro, we see it with Job, we see it with Jael, we see it with Jesse. Uh, we see it at the marriage of Cana. Uh, we see in many of these places this important cultural expectation of hospitality. So here's a man who has a friend come. He is unprepared with provision. It would take way too long to make the bread, or perhaps he doesn't have the supplies. They were going to go the next day to get the supplies to make more bread. Whatever it might be, for some reason he is unprepared. He has no bread, and this is an important deal. He needs to take care of this friend. So he goes to his neighbor, who the Bible says is also his friend. And he knocks on the door at midnight and he asks for three loaves of bread to meet the needs of another. Now the response of the man is somewhat predictable from a human perspective, right? The man looks out his upper window and he effectively says, look, leave me alone. We're all locked up for the night. My family's in bed. The whole family is sleeping together in one room as would have been the custom, particularly in uh, less affluent uh, families at that time. It would not have been unusual for the whole family to sleep together. It's just a room to sleep. You don't live there in Eastern culture. If he were to give into this request, it would mean disturbing the whole family. He has to step over people. He disturbs the whole family. He goes down. He has to unlock the door. He has to get the household up. He has to get the bread. Everything needs to be done. Uh, he gets unsettled himself. He has to lock up again. He has to settle the family again. He has to settle himself again. This is a major inconvenience. And for those of you who have families, particularly if you have younger children, you, you know that the ordeal of bedtime is very real. Uh, it's, it's a struggle. My, my daughters are getting beyond that phase, but my son is certainly not. And of course, uh, we have actually all four of our children sleeping in the same room, which is, is perhaps less wise um, than, than, uh, than anything else. But uh, they don't do a good job at allowing each other go, to go to sleep. Bedtime is a struggle. Uh, they're tired all day until bedtime, and then they've never been tired in their lives. So if this man does have young children, uh, getting the family settled again, this would be an ordeal. So the neighbor says, no, leave me alone. I can't help you. And the point of this little parable is found in verse 8. Though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend. That my, I'm not a good enough friend to do this for you. You're not a good enough friend to, for me to do this for you. Yet because of his importunity, he will rise. It, on the basis of my friendship, I will not help you. But on the basis of your, 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 your shameless, uh, urgent, and um, the word being persistent request, I'm going to give it to you. Even though he doesn't want to give to his friend, even though it's an inconvenience, because of your shameless persistence, your importunity, I will, he will rise and give him what he needs. Now, there are many things we need to clarify as we consider this little parable. Remember when we were talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, we made careful note of what it means that we're dealing with parables. A parable is not an allegory. And many pastors preach parables as allegories. And in an allegory, 
Everything in the story represents something else. And so everything has a meaning. Everything has a point. Of course, the most popular allegory in the history of uh, of, of the English language, at, at least, is Pilgrim's Progress. And everything in that allegory has a symbolic meaning, has a deeper spiritual purpose. Parables are not that way. In a parable, it is a story, and some things may represent something, some things may not represent something, but everything in the story, whether it represents something spiritual or not, points toward one lesson. And the lesson is what matters. Everything else is secondary. Now, there may be some secondary lessons you can draw from all of that, or it may be that something simply exists to help the story along. And we talked about how dangerous it is when we get this confused. We talked about it with the Good Samaritan. That if we try to take the Good Samaritan and make it allegorical, the man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and so people will say he's traveling from the place of blessing to the place of cursing, and they'll talk about how each person that goes by, the priest that goes by, that's the, that's the law, and the Levite that goes by, that's custom, and how these things couldn't save him, but then the Good Samaritan comes along, and that's Christ, and Christ picks him up and saves him and takes him to the inn, and there's an innkeeper there who takes care of him for the, the Good Samaritan, and, and and that would be us. We're the innkeeper who helps. And, and, and pastors get into all of this. And, and there's some good things that can be drawn there. But if we actually consider that as an allegory, it breaks down terribly, doesn't it? It breaks down terribly. We talked about that. You can go back and listen to the, the sermon. And this one's even worse. If we try to use this allegorically, if we try to interpret this passage of Scripture allegorically, we are going to not just confuse, but we are going to grossly misrepresent the character of God. And this is why. If we take this as an allegory, then Jesus is saying that God the Father is the friend who's asleep for the night, right? And you're banging on the door asking something of God, and God gets into these moods where he doesn't want to help. He's too inconvenienced. He's closed up for the night. You're bothering him. And he wants to, he feels compelled to refuse your request until you annoy him enough that he finally acquiesces to your, your, your indulgence, or to indulge your, your persistence, and then he gives in to you. And if you know anything about God, that is not our God. That is not our God. Indeed, Psalm 121 verse 4 says, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. God is not a man, nor is he like a man. As humans, external factors weigh into our willingness to do things, right? Uh, there are some things which I would have a propensity to do at one time, but not another. Uh, as a man, and I don't know if other men, maybe it's, maybe it's not as a man, maybe it's just as me. But when I'm hungry, or when I'm tired, I am less prone to want to be kind. <laughs> I, I don't listen as well. That's not the time to tell me. That's not the time for my wife to tell me that she broke the handle off of the car door. That's not the time for my wife to tell me she got a ding in the parking lot. That's not the time for my wife to tell me that the hinges fell off the shed. Feed me first, then tell me those things. Don't come to me at 10 o'clock at night and give me all the troubles from your day. Let me sleep and hit me in the morning with those. Now, I'm not saying that this is right. This is a character flaw. This is something that should not be. 
I ought to have a consistency of character and a consistency of mood so that whether or not I'm hungry or whether or not I'm tired, I can still be reasonable and still approach my family and my loved ones with their love and the care and the compassion that they deserve. So I'm not trying to say that this is a good thing, but what I'm saying is this is me as a human. My wife knows this, and she's careful with this. My children will know this one day. It's a flaw in my character, uh, but I guarantee you it's not a flaw that God shares. God is not a man. He does not need to eat. He does not sleep. He does not take vacation. He does not take days off. He's not fickle. He doesn't have mood swings. God doesn't say, well, I'm going to give this to you today because I'm feeling good, but tomorrow I'm going to say no to the exact same request. We can't manipulate God, manipulate timing, manipulate circumstances. Hey, mom and dad are in a good mood today. Let's ask for a puppy today. Right? We can't do that with God. God's in a good mood today, so today's the day to ask for the Ferrari. Not tomorrow. So to say that Jesus is paralleling the attitude of the man in the house to God the Father would grossly misrepresent the character of God, wouldn't it? So let's just take the man in the house as a way to prop up the story to teach us something about how the man is requesting, not how the man is rejecting. Alright, so the man that's, that's the, the man in the house with his family shut up, he's simply there to, to, to move the point along to get to the point. The man that's knocking on the door, he's going to teach us a lesson about prayer. So we don't need that man to represent God's character because the parable, the parable has nothing to do with God. It's not teaching us about God as much as it's teaching us about how we should pray, right? How, how should we pray? Lord, teach us to pray. That's what the parable is about. So this is the answer. It's not about how God answers prayer. It's about how you should pray. Instead, Jesus is saying this, and we'll see this come up again in verses 10 through 13. Jesus is saying, if even a very fickle you, a stubborn and fickle you, in the middle of the night, being unwilling to help, because a person is your friend, will eventually get up and help this person, because they are persistent and bold in their request. How much more can you expect a perfect God, who does not have the character flaws of the man in the parable, who is in the house and has to sleep and has a family that he doesn't want to bother and is grumpy and is tired. How much more can a perfect God who doesn't share the character flaws of that man, how much more will he do things for you if you pray with importunity? If even we in all of our sin will give in to this guy, this annoying neighbor, how much more will God give in to us before we have to get there? Because God is loving and merciful and kind as we earnestly and regularly petition Him for our desires and our needs. Now that being said, let's talk about the word importunity. Importunity. In our English language, importunity means an urgent request made with great frequency. An urgent request made with great frequency. I... uh, I've never... I've always been amazed at how often uh, my children... uh, uh, Exercise importunity on long trips. You get in the car, you've packed up all day. You get in the car and 15 minutes later, I've got to go to the bathroom. 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 So you pull over, you go to the bathroom. 15 minutes later, the next child. I've got to go to the bathroom. I've got to go to the bathroom. I've got to go to the bathroom. 
You finally get all that settled. And what's the next question? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Importunity. An urgent desire to be given a thing. But the word in the Greek carries a little bit of a different idea from from the way it was translated into the English with this word importunity. The word in the Greek uh, is, is a bit more general, literally carrying the idea of being shameless. Impudent is actually how, how it can be translated as well, which is a bit more negative than what Jesus is talking about. Obviously, we don't come to God with impudence, but he is saying come to God with shamelessness. Now, we'll talk about what that means. Uh, the idea of throwing out propriety uh, in order to achieve a goal. Now, again, let's not mischaracterize here. Jesus is not saying when God says no, don't take no for an answer and demand what you want from God regardless. How do we know that he's not saying that? Well, because we're reading this in context. And what did we read about last week with the model prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We are praying within the scope of a desire to meet God's will, right? So we're not saying, God, I want what I want and I'm going to demand it of you and I'm not going to let go until you give me what I want, even though you've said no, because we cannot have that. That cannot be importunity. If we're understanding thy will be done is already what we should pray. Okay. And this is why context matters. So then what is Jesus saying here? Well, he clarifies the point as we move on in verses 9 and 10. He says this, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. So Jesus is saying this, In the same way that a neighbor will earnestly, even shamelessly, he will actually, uh, and and the idea of importunity here, the idea of this word shameless in the Greek means that this neighbor knew that, that this is not appropriate for him to go knock on the door. This is not something, in in any normal cultural context, he would say, I don't want to bother my neighbor. I I, I feel like this is something that, may may I translate it into the spiritual? God doesn't need to be bothered with my little problems. It's my problem. God doesn't need to be bothered with it. And you know what God is saying? Look, I want to help you with your little problems. It's a little thing. But would you just leave it before me? Be shameless. Not, not, not in the inappropriate way. But in this idea. Well, that's too little for God. Well, if every hair on my head is numbered, then what's too little for God? So be bold. Be shameless, virtuously shameless. Be willing to take your little things before the Lord. Don't feel like you're inconveniencing God. Well, that's just something that I want. Okay, so what? Put it before the Lord and see what God does with it. Ask. If you don't ask, you won't receive. I might be jumping uh, the gun on an illustration here. I think I am, but I'm going to give it anyway. When I was younger, I played soccer. And I had a coach who used to say something quite profound. If you don't shoot, you can't score. He used to tell us that all the time. See, because you get in front of the net and you're waiting for the perfect shot, and so you play around with it. And what inevitably happens? Someone else gets the ball. He says, you're never going to find the perfect shot. So you know what? You get in proximity of the net, put the ball toward the net and see what happens. Listen, folks, if we don't pray, if we don't ask... Should we expect to receive? If you don't ask, don't be surprised when you don't receive. 
So ask. That's importunity. Don't feel this constraint of propriety. Well, I'm going to bother the Lord. Here's God rolling his eyes again because I'm asking something little of him. Look. Pray with importunity. Ask. And it shall be given you. Seek. And you shall find. If a neighbor in the middle of the night will eventually wake up his entire family and inconvenience help to get inconvenience his family to, to, to help the need of a friend because of his importunity, how much more will a loving God who cannot be inconvenienced, who does not sleep, gladly give to those who ask of him? So are you saying, Pastor, that everyone here that asks, it will be given. Everyone that seeks will find. Everyone that knocks will have the door opened. Yes, I am saying that. Under the conditions that we presented in verses 1 through 4. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Come in humility. Come seeking God's will. Come seeking provision as he's called. Come seeking fellowship. Come seeking spiritual empowerment. Pray seeking God's will. Lay it before him. We cannot throw out alignment. We cannot throw out obedience. The trust that God's way is best. The assurance of God's promises. But don't let the fact that it may not be God's will stop you from asking. Instead, I begin with a prayer of my desires. Now, of course, if I'm praying for something that's contrary to the word of God, it's already a no, right? So I don't even have to worry about those. But if it's something that's not in the word of God, if it's something that I can't get as specific and I want to pray, but I say, oh, you know, that's just not something very spiritual, or that's not something very big. It's, it's small. It's, it's little. Uh, I'm just, I just want a little something. I'm not going to bother God with that. Okay, well, you're not going to bother God with that. Jesus says, look, do. Do. So I pray. And I pray for my desires. And I've checked to make sure I'm not consuming it upon my own lust. We'll talk about that in a moment and all of these things. And if these prayers are in line with God's will, then he'll give me the desire of my heart. That's what this is saying. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. If it's not according to the will of God, then what I can expect is that God will begin through the time of prayer, through my earnestly seeking, to change my heart and my desires toward His. And this is one of the benefits of prayer. This is one of the things that prayer does for us. Prayer is not just me lifting my desires up to God, but prayer is also an opportunity for God to shape my desires. And so if as I'm praying, I find my heart begin to change, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. If as I'm praying, I find that it's not quite being answered the way I would expect, don't be surprised. Because my heart is being molded to God's heart. My will is being molded to God's will. And then as my heart and my will are molded to God's, I receive the desire of my heart. So I say, it's just something little, Lord, but I want it. And I begin praying and I'm not getting it. And as I'm praying and not getting it, I'm realizing, well, maybe it's not of the Lord. And you know, if it's not of the Lord, then I don't want it. Because I want what God wants. And so then my heart begins to change to where my desire begins to wane for that thing. Because I'm beginning to discern that it's not the will of the Lord. And now my heart has been conformed to the Lord's heart. And then as I have conformed to his desires, then I can have new desires that I can bring before him. And then I ask, and now it's in line with the Lord's will, and I receive. Then I seek, and as I'm seeking, my heart is changed. I find the Lord's heart, and I find. As I knock, 
My heart is changed. I find the Lord's heart and the door is opened. If you are praying for something in the spirit, then you will receive the things which you desire. If you do not, it's likely because you're asking amiss. And as you pray, God will be faithful to mold your heart, to change your desires, so that your request will be pleasing unto the Lord. And if your request is already pleasing unto the Lord, then you can expect it to be given. Now, maybe not the way you expected, maybe not in the time you expected, but yours nonetheless. This is what James says, isn't it? James 4, verses 1 through 3. From whence come wars and fightings among you? This is not talking about nations, fighting nations. James is speaking to believers here. From whence come bickering and fighting among you as believers? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war. He's saying, wow, that sounds pretty bad. Isn't that talking about nations? No, I believe here, as, as uh, many people do, that James is actually a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And if that is true, what has God said about killing and about warring in the Sermon on the Mount? If you hate a brother in your heart, you've committed murder already. So I believe James is using Jesus' standard here to tell these Jewish believers, look, you're hating, you're fighting one, one with another, you're desiring things, you're consuming it upon your lusts, and you're doing all of these things, and you're hating your brother in your heart, you're murdering him already. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet why don't you have? Ye have not, he says, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Now as I teach this, there's an unfortunate thing that happens in the heart of man. They say, well, if I don't pray according to God's will, then I won't get it. So I'm just not going to pray unless I know that it's according to God's will. And in one sense, that's, that's commendable, right? I want to pray according to God's will. But this is the very thing that Jesus is teaching. Be shameless in your prayers. Don't be afraid to ask God for things. If you ask and you don't get it, are you asking amiss? Check it. Check your heart. Check the word of God. Are you missing something here? This is the purpose of Jesus' teaching to ask with importunity. You should ask. You should seek. You should knock. Keep going. And as you do, God will work in your heart and in situations and circumstances to bring the prayer about or to bring about His will through your desires. And the primary problem that Jesus is attempting to address here is the problem of fear or shame in prayer. That we are afraid to ask God for things because we don't trust that God actually wants to give them to us or we don't think that they're big enough for Him. The whole point of praying with importunity, with this shamelessness, with this persistence, is that we pray in trust. We trust that God loves us enough to give us what is best for us and we trust that God loves us enough to want to bless us. We'll see that in a moment in the next few verses. So we can ask him for things with virtuous, shameless abandon, right? Again, we're not talking about that which is inappropriate. We're not talking about that which is contrary to God's will, demanding it of him. But within the realm of virtue, don't be afraid to ask God for things. And know that God will take those requests and then do with them what is best for me. 
We've talked about this with various illustrations of a father and a child, and we're not going to get into those again. But can a child not say, Father, I would like this, and then leave that with the father and trust that if it is what's best for them, that the father will lovingly give it to you? And if he doesn't lovingly give it to you, it's because it's not what's best for you at this time. And when I pray like this, I'm not disappointed if I don't see the results I quite expect, am I? Because I know that God has heard me, delights in answering my prayers, and either has chosen to give me the request in a way I don't expect, or God knows that I am asking for something that is not in my best interests, and I can trust that he has or will provide far better than what my mind is currently thinking, or my will is currently desiring. So the key word is to connect importunity This idea of shamelessness with trust. Have you ever done a brainstorming session with a group of people? In a brainstorming session, one of the primary rules, if you've ever done this in a group and they've been teaching you what brainstorming is about or or whatever it might be, one of the primary rules is that there's no bad ideas, right? There's no bad ideas. Brainstorming, the the point of brainstorming is, is that it is a chance for everybody to air out what they think should be done without fearing that people are going to make fun of them because it was a horrible idea. It is a way of dropping people's guard, dropping people's inhibitions to saying what they think because they're afraid it's going to be seen as stupid or, or as ignorant or as silly. And the reason why this is so important is because that people are naturally afraid to speak up because they're naturally afraid that they're going to be seen as silly or dumb or whatever the case may be. They don't trust that if they speak up, the people around them will not ridicule them for their idea. So instead, they just keep their mouths shut. And in doing so, the best solution might be missed because someone's thinking out of the box and they think, I'm going to say this, and this is way out in left field, and everyone's going to laugh at me, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut, and that's the exact out-of-the-box thinking that is needed to solve the problem at hand. So brainstorming is a way of dropping inhibitions so that we can get the best ideas out there. If you are among friends or among a group of people you can trust not to hold silly ideas against you, then you can express them freely and know that they will not be used against you later. You won't be teased for them. You won't be uh, uh, um, brought to bear for them because it was a brainstorming session. This is what you do. And in a manner of speaking, this is what Jesus is calling you to do with God. This is the freedom that you have because you can trust God. Because He loves you. Be shameless. Virtuously shameless in your asking. Don't be afraid to ask God for the little things. Trust that God loves you. He will do what's best for you. And so be bold to ask for what you desire. And this meaning really comes to the forefront in the next three verses, which answer our third question for us as well. What should we pray? We talked about that through our five points last week. Uh, Then we answer how should we pray uh, with importunity. Pray with importunity. Finally, why should we pray? Why should we pray? Verses 11 to 13. Jesus says, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he, for a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? And the obvious answer is no. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more Shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask of Him? 
you're a good father, then your son should be able to ask things of you. And trust that you're not going to snap back at them and get angry at them for asking. Now, if it's something that dad has said no to a bunch of times, expect a negative response, right? If it's something that God says, no, you may not have or no, you should not want in the scriptures, don't expect a yes when you go to God with it. But if a son loves his father and a son knows that his father loves him, then a son might even use that process of asking his father to learn a little something about whether or not he should do something. In other words, I don't know what I should do, so let me go ask dad what he thinks, and his answer will help guide me in my decision-making process. If a son trusts his father enough, not only will his son ask for things which he confidently knows his father will agree with, but he will ask for those things which he wants that he doesn't know his father's opinion on, And more specifically, he'll ask for them to get his father's opinion on it. Dad, I want such and such a brand of something. Dad says, oh no, son, you don't want that. That brand has this problem. You want to go with one of these instead. Let me illustrate. You go to the fair and it's getting near lunchtime. Mom and dad packed a lunch and in doing so, you can be confident that mom and dad intend to feed you. I saw them pack food. They packed more food than just for them. I think I'm quite confident mom and dad intended to feed me today. Now you're getting hungry and you know that your parents will is to feed you at some point. They brought food to feed you. So, you know, my parents have food. I'm getting hungry. We're seeing a merging of circumstances here, right? Provision is already made for you to be fed. So you tell them, mom and dad, I'm hungry. And you trust their discretion to feed you when it's appropriate. Now they know that you're hungry and they begin working in their mind. Okay, is this a good place to go? Uh, is there grass here that we can meet in? Do we need to go back and get the food? Is this good timing? Uh, maybe there's something we wanted to see in a little bit. Uh, the line's not long right now. We'll go do that now and then we'll eat. Or, yep, this is a good time to eat and then we can do those things afterwards. Whatever it might be. Now, it's not worth it to ask, Mom and Dad, can we have food from the fair? It's not worth it, right? Because they packed a lunch. So you can infer something about their will. They did not intend to eat the food of the fair because they packed a lunch so that you don't have to eat the food at the fair. To ask to eat out when they packed a lunch would be to deny the obvious, right? But now after you eat, perhaps you look at dad and say, hey, can we get a treat from the fair? Now dad says something that you would expect. No, treats are too expensive here. Right? At least I would have expected. Treats are too expensive here. Uh, in response, uh, a child has accomplished several things, however. In this response, and in this asking. First, he's made his desire known to his father, right? I desire a treat. Second, he has learned something of the will of his father. Dad does not want to spend that much money on a treat. Third, he's learned something about the nature of his father. What drives his father's will? Money drives my father's will. It drives my father's decision-making process. Now, this is key because now I know what drives my father's decision-making process and I can bend my request to meet my father's decision-making process. And this will help me because now we're driving home and you say, hey, dad, there's a McDonald's there and the treat is only 99 cents. I know the fare was expensive. Can we get a treat at McDonald's? And dad might say, well, the condition upon which I said no was money. I love my child and want to bless him. This is reasonable. Yes, let's do that. And you get what you desire within the bounds of how you understand your father's will. 
Or next time you're going to the fair, you say, mom and dad, I remember last time it's too expensive to get food at the fair. Can we bring a treat along for after our meal? It's a special occasion. Let's go to Walmart. Let's get something special that's less expensive and let's bring it with us so that we can have a treat. And this is me conforming my desire to my father's will. No sense in me begging dad every time for something I know he doesn't want to do. Why not take what I know of my father's character and conform my desire to his character? The father and son work together in concert and here's what happens. The son gets what he desires and the father gets to bless his son. Isn't that neat? That's a neat thing. See, because God loves you And he wants to bless you. He wants to. Like a father. If we being evil, that not meaning implicitly that everything we do is is, is wicked, but we being sinful people with a sinful heart and sinful propensities and imperfections still desire to give our children what they desire, what they want, because we love them and we want to bless them and we want to see the smiles on their faces. How much more do you think God wants to see you smile? How much more do you think God wants to bless you? Just like with Jesus' parable on importunity, he first presents human nature and then he teaches a heavenly principle. So too Jesus does here. An earthly father, his son asks for bread. The father doesn't say, I'm going to give my son a stone to chew on. A father wouldn't do that. A son asks for a fish. The father gives him a snake instead. Ha, ha, ha. Gotcha. A loving father wouldn't usually do that. <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to break up the. Sorry, that was probably not a good idea. I know everything that's running through the minds of some people. My dad would do that, but but the idea is that our loving father wouldn't do that. Right? A son asks for an egg. If a child is truly hungry, a child truly needs something, the father's not going to use that as an occasion to hurt his child, is he? Will a father, when he when his son asks for provision, not provide or at least desire to provide and instead give him something detrimental? No. Will a father curse a child when the child asks for a blessing? No. But the vast majority of society would call anyone that did do that, any, any father who did do that, when a child was truly in need and the father goes out of his way to curse his son instead of bless his son, the vast majority of, of culture, even secular culture, would call that man a bad man. I'm not talking about ingest. I'm talking about when there's a true need. So then if you and I, being sinful humans and deeply flawed and innately evil, know how to bless our children, how much more does God know how to bless you and want to? And notice what it is that he gives in Luke. He says, will God not give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Uh, The parallel passage in Matthew chapter 7 verse 11 says, not the Holy Spirit, but rather good gifts. The idea here is not that God will give the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is not a salvation passage. It's not that God will give the indwelling Holy Spirit to those who ask of him. Obviously he will. But that's not Jesus' point here. The context does not lend itself to that. The point does not lend itself to that. The teaching does not lend itself to that. The idea here is not the indwelling Holy Spirit. Rather, the idea here is a reflection of what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, 
but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. God desires to have, to give us, to, to bless us. He desires us to have Spirit-filled prayers. Because when our prayer is in the Spirit, then He, and we genuinely seek through the Spirit, the prayers, of the, the requests of, uh, unto God, He can freely give it to us. And every prayer prayed in the Spirit, this is what First John tells us, right? That if we ask anything according to His will, He gives it to us. We, we will receive it of Him. This is what He wants to do. He wants to answer our prayers. How much more will a loving Father give us His Spirit to intercede for us that He might give us the desires of our heart if we will ask? So why pray? Pray because you have a Father who loves you. Pray because you have a Father who delights in hearing and answering your prayers. Pray because you have a Father you can trust. So that your prayers can be bold, confident, virtuously shameless before the Lord. And then as you make requests, you can learn better what God desires, and then you can draw nearer unto His will. Now, with the rest of our time this evening, I would like to help you go in a slightly different direction, help you have a practical template for prayer. This is something that I taught many years ago, and and I've I've taught it on occasion. It's not necessarily directly biblical. I mean, it it is in one sense. It's not in another. It's it's man-made. But it'll help you if you struggle with content in your prayers. We've talked about what we should pray and, and the general idea. We've talked about how we should pray. We've talked about why we should pray. As we walk through the Word of God, however, we find many examples of prayer. And not all of those examples are asking for things, are they? In fact, even as we answered our first question last week, what we should pray, we recognize several elements of prayer that exist outside of asking. Humbling ourselves, conforming to the will of God. And they're somewhat common, it's perhaps familiar, you may even be familiar with it, an acrostic. A-C-T-S-I, actsi, meant to help you remember it, so that as you're praying, perhaps in a situation where you're wondering what to pray, this can come to mind and it can help inform the general idea, the general content of your prayers. And the first one of these is adoration. Adoration. The primary avenue through which the church lifts up its praise to God is the avenue of song. We see that in scripture. That the avenue of singing is the primary method of corporate praise unto God. Yet throughout the Bible we find prayer to be another avenue through which God is praised. Solomon praised the Lord on the day the temple was dedicated. 2 Chronicles 6 verses 4 and 5. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who hath with his hands fulfilled that which he spake with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city among all the tribes of Israel to build a house in, that my name might be there. Neither chose I any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. So Solomon is blessing the Lord in prayer here, saying God is good and God is faithful and God has performed his promises. 
Daniel did the same. Daniel 9 verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces. There's some confession here as well, which we'll talk about in a moment. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries, whither thou hast driven them because their trespass in their, uh, because of their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. But he says, Lord, righteousness belongs to you. He puts God in God's proper place. He puts himself in his proper place place. This is adoring the Lord. This is exalting God's characteristics in prayer. And we ought to do the same. It's a part of that, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Hallowed be thy name. Giving God the glory that is due unto his name. Second, the C. Act C. A. Adoration. C. Confession. Confession is the essence of fellowship, is it not? It is what keeps us in fellowship. We considered this closely last time we were together from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the Psalms, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We need to be careful that we have a short sin account with God, that we are in fellowship with Him through confession. To walk in fellowship with the Lord, we must be free from unconfessed sin. Once again, we turn to Daniel for a wonderful example. Of confession. We read Daniel 9, 7, verses 4 through 6 say this. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. More adoration there. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers. And to all the people of the land. Daniel goes on for many more verses confessing the iniquities of his people. He'd seen that the 70 years of captivity were up and he was desiring of the Lord to bring his people out of captivity. And in this, as I mentioned, there is, there is adoration, but we see this concept that Daniel is begging God to restore fellowship with his people and to restore unto them the blessings of the covenant through humble submission. We should adore him in prayer. We should confess before Him in prayer. Third, the T, thanksgiving. We adore the Lord for who He is. We confess before the Lord how we fall short. We thank the Lord for all He has given. Let us not be so hasty to ask without being hasty to thank God for the many ways in which He has blessed us. Indeed, apart from the discipline of asking, there is no other element of prayer that is so often seen in the Bible as thanksgiving. The command to be a thankful people is a command which pervades the scriptures, particularly the epistles. Paul spoke of it regularly. Yeah, as a matter of fact, he spoke of it in almost every one of his epistles about praying in thanksgiving. Romans 1.8 First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. 1 Corinthians 1.4 I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Christ Jesus. It would not be a hard study for you to do to see how many times Paul specifically speaks of thanking God in prayer. He's doing it all the time. Thanking God continually for God's people. Thanking God continually for their, for, for their obedience. Thanking God continually for their persistence. Thanking God continually for their testimony. We need to be a thankful people. Thanksgiving helps us recognize the ways that God has blessed and the ways that God has answered our prayers. And, and if we're not seeking, if, if, if we're praying, and we're either not praying specifically enough to know when God answers our prayers, or we're not looking for the answers to those prayers, our prayer life is going to become very weak. 
We ought to be a thankful people. Number four, A-C-T-S, acts, supplication. This is the one. This is the asking, right? This is when we ask God for things. Take note that these are in no particular order of importance. I'm not saying do adoration first, then confession, then thanksgiving, then supplication. As a matter of fact, I would recommend confession first. Uh, uh, that, that would be wise, right? Because we need to deal with that. And then you can get on to these other things. So we're not necessarily giving an order here. But we've spoken for the last several weeks about supplication. It's what most of our time today was about. We ought to be asking God for things. And by the way, remember, always remember, God wants you to ask Him for things. Importunity. Finally, I, intercession. You ought to be praying for others. Pray for others. Lifting our hearts in prayer for their needs, for their success. Moses stood in the gap, the Bible tells us, for the land. He stood before God and the people. The people fell short and Moses fell on his face. He said, God, remember your covenant. God, be merciful unto them. Moses stood in the gap. Daniel interceded in confession for the nation of Israel. Ezekiel interceded for the nation of Israel. Paul, my heart's desire, Paul says, would be for my people to be saved. For I could wish myself accursed for my brethren, according to the flesh. We are commanded to pray for laborers to go into the harvest. Is this not intercession? We are commanded to pray for the salvation of all men, specifically our leaders. Is this not intercession? Going to prayer for others is an essential element of the Christian prayer life. And if these five elements exist in our prayer life, our prayers will be quite full and quite complete. By the way, parents, you know, how often do we intercede for our children? Little can we know, I don't think, how often uh, our intercessions for people may have saved them from ruin. Now, all five of these need not exist each time we pray. There are times where the Lord might compel your heart to only adore Him in prayer. Let's just adore Him today. Let's do nothing but adoration. Okay. Let's just confess our sin and move on. Okay. Let's mix them all. Let's just be thankful today. Let's just ask for what we need today. Let's just pray for the needs of others today. Let's stand in the gap for our nation. Let's stand in the gap for our children. Let's stand in the gap for our spouse. Let's stand in the gap. Fill in the blank. But the point is that the Bible teaches all of them at various times they can benefit us in one way or another. Now, over these past two weeks, we have considered three questions on prayer. They are drawn out of the text in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, where the topic at hand is, Lord, teach us to pray. We ended in these generalized instructions. We can sometimes get it in our heads that our prayers need to sound a certain way, that if they don't sound pious or prayerful or whatever it might be, that we don't want to pray. We have a tendency to emulate the prayers of those whom we admire and think if we're not praying that way, we're not praying properly. We wonder if our prayers sound right, contain the right things, and actually sometimes can convince ourselves that if they don't sound a certain way, God does not hear them. May I just say, none of that really matters. None of that really matters. If you do what Jesus taught, then you're doing it right. Right? If you're coming before the Lord... The way Jesus taught in Luke 11, 2 through 13, you're doing it properly. Doesn't matter how it sounds, you're doing it properly. But regardless of the method, regardless of the emphasis, let me just ask you as we close, how is your prayer life? 
When I was growing up, as I mentioned, playing soccer, the coach said, if you don't shoot, you can't score. You can have plenty of Christian virtues, but if you aren't praying, if you aren't asking, don't expect the power of God to rest upon you. If you aren't praying for it, don't expect people to be saved. If you aren't praying for it, don't expect people to come to church. If you aren't praying for it, don't expect wisdom from above. If you aren't praying for it, don't expect success. Power from God comes from prayer to God. And to those who will ask, the Bible says God desires to give his Holy Spirit. The power comes through prayer. So how is your prayer life? Prayer is not an easy thing, is it? And I think it, it, it perhaps is more difficult in our culture than in others of times past because there's always something to fill the time, isn't there? There's always something to fill the time. And because of the nature of media today, it's hard to focus. But are you busy about this important work? Because they that ask receive, and they that seek find, and they that knock have the door open. Let's pray.